Thanks for tuning in to McNamara on Money, a podcast about all things financial. On this show, we talk about investments and investment performance. In our practice, we give financial advice to our clients. We know their financial situation in detail before doing so. That's not the case with callers we may speak to on this show. We can't give truly meaningful financial advice because we don't know the detailed financial situation of the caller. Any suggestions we make to callers are generic in nature and meant to steer a caller in the right direction. Listeners to this podcast need to check with their own financial professionals before implementing any suggestions that we may make. And we're back. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined this morning by my brother and business partner, Justin McNamara. Good morning again. Good morning. We are doing a tax type show. Now that tax time is tax filing time is behind us. We're doing a what you need to know for this upcoming tax year, 2023 tax planning type stuff. So we spent a good amount of time on tax brackets, contribution limits, et cetera, retirement (coughs) plans, excuse me, options for people. Yep. And there was just a couple other tax related numbers that I thought would be interesting to go through before we get into some other conversations regarding tax planning for the upcoming year. They it looks like the limit some people people may or may not know that there is part of the taxes that we pay are social security or what are called FICA taxes, so social security and Medicare taxes come out yep. unless you work for a municipality and you're not paying into the social security system, maybe you're paying into a pension, right. most people's right. wages are taxed uh, 7.65%, which is what they what we call OASDI and Medicare tax. So 6.2% of wages are taxed and that goes to the social security system right. and 1.45% of wages are taxed and that goes to Medicare. Important to note that your employer also contributes that same amount on your behalf, or if you're self-employed, you're contributing double that amount, double FICA taxes. But important to note that the the Social Security component of that tax, which is the higher percentage, the 6.2% that goes to Social Security, that's only for wages up to, in 2023, $160,200. So wages above that, there's no 6.2% tax on Social Security, but there's no limit to the Medicare tax. So all wages with no limit are taxed at the 1.45%, which goes to Medicare. But Social Security, there is a maximum. That's actually up quite a bit. Again, almost 10% from 2022. We have had high inflation. Yep. Last year, it was, was 147000 was the limit. So now it's 160000 Yeah. And just for those of you who don't know. The social security formula is fairly complicated and it, but it does, it treats different levels of income at different places, different levels of income at different rates. Right. But that there is a cap, right? So once you, once you get over $160,200 for 2023, none of your income above that number will affect your, your social security benefit down the line. There, I actually don't have it on this sheet, but there is somewhere we could probably find it elsewhere. Maybe you could find it quickly while I'm talking. Yeah. The maximum social security, the maximum amount of social security benefits that someone can receive. Okay. Those adjust upward periodically. So at different ages, social security income is capped. The contributions are capped, but in, in incomes, income received in retirement, 
is capped at different ages and that has adjusted upward over time as well. So I don't actually have that on my, you just, you just mean like the, the most benefit. you could get if you had maxed out every, right. so all of your 30 to so the formula is based right. on a 35 year average. And so if you maxed it out in theory for all of your 35 years, there is a, there's an upper limit to how much you could get. I actually don't know that either. Um, yeah. It's, and I want to say it's like maybe it's 3,600. It's like 4,000 a month or something in that range. Yeah. That might be somewhere on the social security.gov website, but that's interesting to know. Yeah. And if it's based on different ages, so whoever has maxed out, there's a cap on monthly benefits that can be paid out, but that does make sense because it's capped on the way in. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's the, I, this is just, this is from the social security website. I think, I think it's a normal retirement age benefit of 3627, right. uh, yep. which would like uh, at, over at age 70, it would be 4555. So I'm pretty sure that's the cap. I mean, obviously we work with some yeah. clients who are up in those areas because for a long time, the social security uh, limit was pretty substantially lower than it is now. 160 is high. If you look back at the yep. at the earnings chart over the last, if you're close to retirement, you may be looking back 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. Those numbers are significantly lower. Also under the heading of social security, for people that collect, for people that collect a social security benefit before their full retirement age and yep. still have earned income, there's a limit to how much income they can earn before they start to lose social security benefits. Right. And this doesn't apply if you're collecting at your full retirement age or older and full retirement ages right now, or for people like it's 66 and four months right now, or something like that. Like people turning, I think 66 and four months right now are a full retirement age or maybe six months. It's in that range. And for a lot of people, that will adjust upward to age 67. But if you collect your benefit before full retirement age, and if you earn more than a certain amount of income in 2023, you start to lose your social security benefits. If you're planning to work part-time in retirement, then you will consider that you can only, you have to earn less than $21,240 in yep. order for your social security to not be affected if you're collecting and you're under your full retirement age. So that's upward, that's up a couple of thousand dollars from 2022. Yep. But again, that doesn't apply to people that are collecting their full retirement age. You can have any amount of earned income over your full when you're over your full retirement age, any amount of earned income, and it does not negatively affect your social security benefit. But I think that's about it. Oh, you know what? How about social security, the taxation or the taxability of social security benefits themselves? So okay. social security... <laughs> You're going well, deep into on, the weeds it, it, now. It's yeah. on my it's on my sheet. <laughs> I do think it's important to note. I always tell people, uh, retirees that are collecting Social Security or about to collect Social Security, when we're having these conversations, I always explain that Social Security is lightly taxed. It's not a hundred percent taxed for anybody when you're collecting Social Security. And I actually one time, I don't know if I read about the explanation or Maybe the social security consultants that up. we had on the no. show. No, there was, there's, there's a reason there's like a, there's like an avoiding double taxation reason for why it's not a hundred percent tax. Oh. And I remember reading about it or hearing about it and not fully, it, I don't know that I ever fully followed that, but there's, there, there's a reason why it's not fully taxed and it's to avoid double taxation. But anyway, oh. at most social security is 85% taxed. So a yep. married couple filing jointly, if their what we call modified adjusted gross income is greater than is $44,000 
or greater, then their benefit is 85% taxable. Okay. But there are people, if you're, if you're married filing jointly and your taxable income is, I'm sorry, your modified adjusted gross, I believe it's, if it's $32,000 or less, then your social security is only 50% taxable. Yeah. It's a big, it's a, that's one of those, it's one of those big steps that you have to be careful of when you are planning IRA distributions and retirement, right? Because if you look at your, your average retiree, they may have some probably more flexibility than, than a working person, right? So if you have your, just your social security income and then maybe portfolio options, as far as where you take that money from, that's another one that you have to pay attention to because you can jump yourself up from 50 to 85. And that's, that can be a big number, right? Obviously all that going to your tax return is a lot. Yep. Okay. So that's probably all I had that I wanted to go through on all these numbers. Did you have anything else? Actually, I'm sorry. I got one more for you, Justin. Is it um, an exciting one? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Let's talk about HSAs, health savings accounts. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that, right. That's right. That is an exciting one because actually you and I had a side conversation about that a few weeks ago. We were talking about HSAs. Yeah, more um, and more common. Yeah, we yep. should definitely touch on that one. HSAs, health savings account. So for people that have high deductible health plans, that I don't forget the limit. I want to say the deductible has to be 2,000 or more for an individual, maybe 3,000 or more for a family. Yeah, that's right. I think that does sound right. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's an inflated number, but it was, it used to be, I know we had a 2,000, but yeah, they, but I think that's right. Yeah, I don't know if that changed, but for so for we people asked that Pat have a, about that. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, people that have high deductible health plans uh, are eligible for health savings accounts. These are the type of accounts where it's not the use it or lose it type account, which is the flexible spending account is you have to be more careful what you put in there. You have to use by year end. But the health savings account dollars in there can roll forward contribution limits to that are in 2023, if you're a single person, actually, I don't know if that's single filing status or single health plan election status. Oh, that's actually a good one. I don't know the answer to that. Again, Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's right, because you could have a... I think it's fairly, I guess you're right. If you have two working people, but that would, I don't know. I feel like it's fairly uncommon to run into someone who has two separate health plans. Yep. So I thought it would be for your filing status. That's yeah, a guess. That's okay. We're not sure about that one. Asterisk, unsure. <laughs> anyway, for a, the single contribution limit to an HSA is $3,850 for 2023. That's up a little bit from last year, just a couple hundred bucks. Yep. And the, the family contribution limit for 2023 is $7,750 with a catch up contribution of $1,000. Yeah. For 50, for 50 or older. Right? Yeah. And again, I don't know if it's one person has to be 50 or older or if both members of the married couple have to be that. I'm not sure about either. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one either. Yeah, I would like to take a detour here probably for a planning yeah. planning discussion, right? For a lot of folks who, if you are maxing out 401ks, and I know we run into this situation a lot, right? You're playing catch up before retirement. Using your HSA as a savings vehicle can certainly make a lot of sense, right? Again, yeah. I know that people, they're designed to have, you know, to be used for medical expenses. Obviously, you can, you and I can use our HSA for medical expenses if we so choose. We can put it a tax deductible contribution in, we can get out tax free money to pay for it, which is sounds and is a great deal. However, 
if you are able to pay for your medical bills out of cash flow and invest your HSA money, it is it's pretty tax effective yeah. in the long run. And it's also a good way for you to shelter some more more of your income and just boost up your retirement savings. Right. Yeah. No requirement of distributions on health savings accounts. There are some some pretty nice benefits to them. Obviously, they come with probably some a, a bit more from a cost point of view on the investment side, generally speaking. But mm. for the tax benefits inherent in them, if you want to look at those as an extra way to save for retirement and an extra way to set aside a few bucks and dodge some income taxes, they are a great option. I think they're the only account that offers triple tax benefits. Triple tax benefits. Right. So tax, so dollars go in tax deductible, yep. dollars grow tax deferred and qualified distributions for medical expenses come out tax free. So there's almost nothing else like that. Even a Roth IRA, you only get, that's only double tax benefit. You get tax deferral and tax free at the yep. when on withdrawals, but you don't get a deduction going in. Nope. And 529, same thing, double tax benefits where it's tax deferral, qualified distributions for education are tax free, but you don't get a dedu- deduction going in, at least at the federal level. Some states offer a small, Massachusetts offers a small tax deduction on the way in, but it's capped at 2000 bucks a year or something. So it's the only, I'm pretty sure, I'm 99.5% sure that's the only yeah. investment vehicle that offers triple tax benefits. So yeah, I do have some clients with HSAs that have pretty good cash flow and elect to pay out of pocket for medical expenses so that they can just use their HSA for another type of retirement investment vehicle and plan to use it for health expenses in retirement. And that's great if people can do it. It's a very tax efficient, the most tax efficient vehicle that I'm aware of anyway. Yeah. Um, so make use of it if you have one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's all I wanted to go through regarding tax numbers, but we wanted to get into some concepts, I think, and some discussion points surrounding personal financial tax planning and your personal financial life. So one of them is just the concept tax withholding. I, maybe this is obvious, but or, but not for everyone because most people are pretty familiar with the concept, I think. Yeah. But where, what I was going to say is I, I do think that some people get confused. I think it's important to note that there's a difference between tax withholding and right. taxes due. Yes, true. And I guess maybe so not everyone is clear on that, right? So sometimes I'll talk about when I'm setting up IRA distributions for a client in retirement or something and I'm talking about withholding taxes for them and sending an after-tax amount. Some people aren't clear that what we're talking about withholding isn't necessarily exactly what they're going to owe. And it really depends on their their tax situation in the given year. They might be like, oh, that's those taxes are high. And I'm like, it's just a guess. I don't know what it will be. Right. So the, so what withholdings educa- are educated. Guess. educated yeah. Guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's an educated guess. So withholdings are or should be anyway what you think you will owe on certain amounts of money. So when you're withholding on your your salary, for example, that's payroll companies are pretty good about based on what you're being paid and how dependents you have. And if you're married or single and calculating appropriate withholdings. 
And we do the same thing when we are, again, setting up retirement account distributions. People should be doing the same thing when they're starting Social Security, when they're taking pension income. What you elect for your withholding should be, in my opinion anyway, what you think you're you're going to owe on that money. And the easiest way for me to think about it is what are all the sources of income? Where do I think you're, what tax bracket do I think you're going to fall in and making a get and making an educated guess on that in, in that regard. But I do think it's important for people to know that if they, for example, some people don't, some people that are retired, maybe they don't withhold anything on their social security check. And so they might want to, withhold over withhold on their IRA distributions, or maybe they're withholding too much on social security and then they don't need to withhold as much on their IRA distributions. So you're with, you should have withholdings in different places, or I guess if you don't, they one withholding should make up for the lack of other withholding. I do think it's important for people to know that there are, that the federal government imposes penalties for people that under withhold throughout the course of the year. So if you think about the government, they they want income throughout the year to meet their expenses. They don't want all of their income to come in between March and April every year at tax time. So they impose penalties for people that did not withhold enough throughout the year. They're forcing taxpaying Americans to send them money throughout the year so that they have cash flow. They still don't have enough cash flow, but they need some cash flow to to pay their bills. The way that I went onto the IRS.gov website and the way, because I actually couldn't remember the specifics. I knew it was like 90 or 95% of something that you have to withhold. So there's a, if you can avoid the penalty by withholding, I'm sorry, by paying at least 90% of the taxes that you'll owe in that year throughout the year, or 100% of the taxes owed for the prior year, whichever amount is less. So if you think about current year and prior tax year, probably nobody, it's hard to know maybe exactly, it's hard to know exactly what you're going to owe in current year. You could estimate it, but the sort of the, probably the easiest thing and when what most accountants I'm guess I'm guessing do is they recommend that their tax clients withhold a hundred percent of the prior tax year throughout the year to avoid the penalty. So you have to withhold a hundred percent of last tax years, taxes due throughout the year, send that in, or 90% of what you think you'll owe this year, again, throughout the year. So many people, that's just through wages, withholdings on wages. Some people pay quarterlies, but it's important to to do that. Or there is, there's an underpayment penalty, which is now, I looked it up and it changes every quarter. And now that interest rates are high, it's like the underpayment penalty is 7%. Yeah. So it's whatever the under compounded daily, 7% annually on whatever you <laughs> under withheld, try to avoid that and withhold the the proper amounts. Yeah, just a few comments on that. It's certainly hard, right? And we will often have this discussion in the context of an an IRA distribution, right? How much should I withhold on my IRA distribution? It is always an educated guess, right? Because even if you know your marginal tax rate, right? Oh, I'm in the 22% tax bracket. It doesn't mean you're always going to get the average tax rate, right? Because obviously we have a graduated income tax system. So even if you're in the 22% tax bracket, that doesn't mean that all of your income is taxed at 22%. And even your own specific distribution may be taxed at different rates because it may jump you over a bracket. You're just making best guesses. And this is the kind of thing that you will find out 
on a year to year basis. So I think most people have a decent handle on it just because they are, it's put in front of them every year. And if they file their taxes one year and there's a penalty, then there's generally going to be a relatively quick adjustment in that next year. So let's talk about, let's start to talk about withholdings versus actual tax yep. for a moment. And there's basically three situations. There's number one, you could under withhold and owe at tax time. Again, yep. we want to avoid that because we want to avoid significant under withholding because we want to avoid penalties, but we could under withhold and owe at tax time. We could perfectly withhold an O zero or five bucks or 10 bucks or whatever. Yeah. We're close enough. Or we could over withhold and get a refund at tax time. So important for people to know that whatever you're withholding on whatever sources of income, it's all going to come out in the wash, assuming you do your taxes properly. And right. if you over withheld, you'll get a refund. If you under withheld, you'll owe or possibly you'll break even. We want to avoid significant underwithholding for two reasons. Number one, we want to avoid penalties. And number two, no one likes writing a giant check to the IRS or the MDOR, right? No, they do not. No. Nope. And that, it's painful. It's like if when we're withholding, we don't really see it. It doesn't hurt yeah. as much. <laughs> so nobody really likes physically writing out and mailing that check. It's the same thing with quarterlies. But so in my so I generally think it, it's great to either break even. Some people like overwithholding and getting a big tax refund. Yeah. And you can make a case you're loaning the government money and tax, a tax free loan to the government. Yeah. I'm sorry, an interest free loan to the government. Yeah. Loan to the government. You're missing out on you could have invested that. You're missing out on some investment growth. There, there's reasons where it's maybe financially speaking better to. And there, uh, there is now withhold. interest on savings accounts and CDs. This whole discussion disappeared for a bunch of years when right. you literally didn't get anything in the bank. But right. now, now the alternative. It's one thing to give the government an interest-free loan when your opportunity for interest was essentially zero, but you know you can get might be able to get five percent in a short-term CD, and that might yep. look pretty good relative to relative to just lending the money to your government. Again, the right. numbers that we're talking about are if it's going to be if you're going to get a refund of fifty thousand dollars versus a thousand, the finances are obviously very different with regards to the interest. It's all a personal decision, and I don't think I have strong opinions. Either way, other than substantial yeah. refunds probably aren't that great an idea unless you're using it for something very specific. Yeah. And I think a lot of people like the forced savings yep. when they get a tax refund, they get a few thousand bucks or something. They Maybe they wouldn't have saved it throughout the year. They could throw it in their savings account and maybe not touch it. But I think some people just like that and that's fine. OK, we have to take a quick break. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined by Justin McNamara, my brother and business partner, check us out, McNamara of the Merrimack.com or McNamaraFinancial.com. We're just taking a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Mike McNamara. If you're looking for a financial advisor, start by asking him or her three questions. Number one, are you a certified financial planner practitioner? Number two, are you legally held to a fiduciary standard of care for your clients? And number three, do you only give financial advice and not sell investment products? These are all simple yes-no questions. If he or she doesn't answer yes quickly and starts talking, that's a no, and it's time to move on to another advisor. And we're back. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined by my brother and business partner, Justin McNamara. Hey, we've been in business now for 20 years together. Ooh, have you been here 20 years? That's right. I guess my 20 year was a few years ago. It was... You're only one year behind, oh, you're ahead right. of me. No, it's is I'm at twenty. I just went to twenty one. I guess that's 21, right. Twenty one. Yeah. I don't think you've been here for twenty years, though. I want to say we're maybe in the summer. 
It was okay. No, you're right. This year is my 20th year in okay. the business. But you haven't crossed but it. But I yet. haven't actually, yes, crossed that mark yet. But yeah, 20 years, 21 years. Oh, and my. I did, and gosh, so for dad, then it must be. 35 years or something. That's a lot of years. Anyway, anyway, we've been in business together a while and that's great. So anyway, and and we only started doing the show together like a couple years ago. I know. We've switched it up. I used to do it with dad a lot. Kirk and I did it for a while together. Yeah. I wasn't even on it for a while. That was my Saturdays were just (laughs) Saturdays were so free. (laughs) Your Friday nights were free (laughs) of stress of outlining for shows. All right. We are talking about taxes today, tax-related stuff. Now that tax time is behind us, we're doing some, I don't know, what you need to know for this Tax year. time is over. Let's get ready for next year. Love it. That's our. That's going to be our podcast title. That'll be when that when the podcast comes out. That's what it's going to read on your podcatcher. Love it. And now that they're in, so we're talking tax stuff, but this is an interesting time to talk about that, especially as it relates to interest on bonds in your investment portfolio, because now we have an interest rate environment that we haven't had, hadn't had for more than a decade. Interesting times to have. We haven't had this discussion in (laughs) years and years. So we wanted to get into, this is a tax related conversation, but it has to do with the interest on taxable bonds versus tax-free or municipal bonds. So you put this part of the outline together. So I'm handing this one over to you and I'll chime in when I want to. Yeah, just to set the baseline. So there are different types of bonds, right? A bond is just like, a, what's this? For those of you not familiar, it's just like a CD, right? You lend your money to say a company, we'll say you lend them, you lend money to Apple, they pay you an interest rate. And that particular bond is taxable to you, right? So the interest, if you lend your money to Apple at 5%, those 5% interest rate payments are going to be taxable to you, assuming you're holding it not inside of an IRA. So inside of an IRA, this discussion is relatively moot. But outside of an IRA, you can have bonds that are taxable on an ongoing basis, or you can have bonds that are not taxed on an, uh, by the federal government on an ongoing basis. The state of Massachusetts, if they issue a bond and you purchase it, the federal government is not going to tax that interest. So you get what's, we'll call it taxable versus tax-free bond. They might also be referred to as municipal bonds. When you are doing the math on which one is better, right? If, if both bonds are paying 5% and one is not taxed, from an interest point of view by the federal government, one is, obviously, you're going to want to grab the one that's not taxed, right? So what happens, what ends up happening is there's a taxable equivalent yield, which is, all right, if I was paying, this bond is tax-free, and so effectively, I'm getting more interest, right? Because if my alternative bond was taxable, I would need a, I would need a, a larger interest rate in order to counteract the effects of taxes on the interest payment, right? And so the difficulty is that everyone taxable equivalent yield is different, right? Because everyone has a different tax rate, not everyone, but there are lots and lots of different tax rates, right? So we have folks in who are in very low tax brackets, even zero. We have people who are up in the 37% tax bracket. There, there are some complexities that you can add in with state taxes as well. I think we'll keep it federal just for the purposes yeah. of this discussion. And so what happens is Over long periods of time, you tend to see like a semi-equilibrium of, oh, okay, what's the interest rate on a taxable bond versus a semi-equivalent tax-free bond? But 
that number is not always static, nor are interest rates always static. We have we have the yield curve. I don't know. We I get a lot of questions about the about the economy and if we're going into a recession. One of the one of the primary indicators of whether or not we're going to have a recession is an inverted yield curve. So short term bonds have higher interest than long term bonds, which is yep. the opposite of what is normal. And so we have all kinds of movement on interest rates obviously they've been increasing we have currently we do have an inverted yield curve and so that that creates i guess opportunity i guess risks and opportunities with regard to what type of bonds you're investing in and now it's maybe a recalculation of what type of investment you should have in your particular portfolio is it's not mandatory but it's the kind of thing you want to keep on top of on an ongoing basis. Did I explain that okay? It's not super easy to explain without showing numbers. And I tried to stay out of numbers, but we can, we'll get into some. So generally speaking, interest rates on taxable bonds are higher than interest rates on municipal bonds. Right. But the difference in what those interest rates are changes over time. But the difference right now is pretty substantial. The difference, right. Right, yeah, I guess it's, yeah, depend, and it's different at different parts of the yield curve. Now, it's not always, All right. you can't buy the exact same bond and have one be, right, tax-free and one be right. taxable because you're right. either, either oaring it. So there, there is a spread between the two, right? So all the highest quality taxable bonds, right? So let's say U.S. government bonds and then the highest quality municipal bonds, there's a, they'll, be a, there'll be a difference between those two, generally speaking, although not always. Again, there, there are certain times when we'll call them dislocations in the market when there yeah. are usually shorter term timeframes when those numbers may, they may invert. But those are, again, that's usually fairly temporary. So generally speaking, so taxable bond, sorry, corporate bond or taxable bond yields yep. are usually higher. They are now for many bond investments than municipal or tax-free bond interest rates. So for people that are in low tax brackets, even in their non-retirement accounts or their taxable accounts, it might make sense to have taxable bonds because they could pay a low amount of tax on that and the after-tax yield would still be better, maybe, might be better than than a roughly equivalent municipal bond. That's That's for people in low tax brackets sometimes corporate or taxable bonds, they might get a 1099 and there's like actually taxable interest on that. That might actually be in their best interest versus municipal bonds at a lower yield. But people in higher tax brackets, oftentimes, right, that the municipal or the tax-free bond investments will be in their best interest because the tax-free yield for them is going to be higher than the after-tax yield on a corporate bond. Yeah. But that, again, it changes over time. Yeah, And that's, I think that's the best way to generalize it. We have these three tier, maybe they're just for me, but we have these tiers in our tax code, right? Where yeah. we have the lower tax rates, there's the 10 and the 12%, right? We have the middle, which is the 20 in the 20s, 22, yep. 24. And then yep. we have people in the 30s, so 32, 35, 37. If you wanted to generalize, you would probably say that, yes, under most circumstances, if you have a tax, if you have a, an investment portfolio that's going to be taxed on an ongoing basis and you're in one of the lower brackets, you're probably more appropriate for taxable bonds. Just to use a fairly current, right? So I think I I just looked up the bond market index, one of them. I think this is a Vanguard total bond market ETF. The yield is about 4% right now. If you are in a 
if you're in the 12% tax bracket, your after-tax yield is 3.52%. So still a pretty okay. healthy yeah. yield. And in, in this case, higher and better than the yield on a comparable kind of municipal bond market index. It's, I use the iShares National Municipal Bond Index. The ticker is MUB. Just as an example, not as a recommendation, the yield on that investment is about 3%. So clearly, if you're in the 12% tax bracket, yeah. you want 4% less 12% taxes as opposed to 3%. Whereas if you go and if you do the same account, let's see, let me run it. Out. We'll use the big one. We'll use 37%. Let's see, times. After. Yeah. Then your after tax yield in the 37% would be 2.5%. Right. Whereas, right. So you have to pay a bunch yeah. of money in taxes. Your yield goes all the way down to two and a half. And so now you're in a situation where you really probably don't want that want that bond. You want a similar municipal bond that's tax free because you can get three percent right. elsewhere. So you'd be giving up a half a percent in return, paying that to the tax man. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was yeah. just going to say the problem is that one of the problems is that First of all, the interest rates change over time. That's right. And the Delta. As we found out in 22. Right, sorry, yeah. the spread between taxable bonds and municipal bonds changes over time as well. And people's right. tax brackets change over time sometimes. but And switching back and forth is a taxable event. Exactly. So that's right. where I was going with that. So <laughs> we might say one year, the corporate bonds are more tax efficient for us. Five years later, the municipal bonds might be more tax efficient for a client. The Right. But the problem is to sell that corporate bond and get into that muni bond, there might be capital gains realized to do. And that's not very tax efficient in and of itself. Right. And do we want to realize those gains for what's the break even, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and there's so, trading costs potentially. Right, yeah, right. There's all kinds of... Again, it's the kind of thing that we yeah. we are certainly as advisors we're not changing on a on on a regular basis. Although there are certainly times when a change is warranted, if a significant raise, maybe right. So when during your working years, if your income goes up, there's a there's probably a, a, a chance to review that. If you are retiring, right, that's also a big one. Yeah. Right, if you're in if you're in municipal bonds because you've been making a great income for a bunch of years, and then all of a sudden you snap your fingers and you're retired the next year and you don't have any earned income coming in, you could. We regularly see folks dropping from from the 20s and 30s as far as tax rate going all the way down to the 10 or 12. 12 and yeah. in that case, yeah. you know, those are pretty substantial differences. Yeah. And so I just that's the kind of thing. Just because rates have changed so substantially, we're in a different environment now than we have. Have been for a lot of years. I think it's time to maybe kind of review your own personal position and tax situation and just make sure you're in the right spot. Just a coincident, maybe coincidentally, a 4% yield on a government bond less in the, in the 24% tax bracket brings you right down yeah. to just about 3%. On the, it's a coin flip, essentially. So for many people, it doesn't matter right now, anyway. In the, if you're in the 20s, yeah, it's probably. 24, yeah. And again, yeah. in, but it depends on what part of the yield curve you're at, right? It depends on the bond. There are other parts of the market where, you know, short, very short term government bonds are at four and a half, whereas an equivalent municipal bond is at two and a half. Right? So mm -hmm. in those cases, 
just to, I think everybody should be in the government bond because, you know, that four and a half, even less a bunch of taxes doesn't get you down to doesn't get you down to two and a half unless you're right. putting in some state taxes, which in this case, we're not. Oh, I had a brilliant thought and I lost it. Oh, man. Oh, you know what I was going to say? No, it's still. I got it. I got it. I got yeah. it. This is actually probably a good time for people to review that because there might be opportunities to make a change without capital gains because many bonds did not have a great year last year in the down market. (laughs) And so any unrealized capital gains in a bond position are probably either significantly reduced or eliminated. So this, if making a change in your bond portfolio is warranted right now based on your tax bracket and the yields and the spreads, this might actually be an opportunity to do so without realizing capital gains or without realizing much in the way of capital gains, just because what was the bond index down? Aggregate bond index was down 13% in 2022 and is back up a little bit this year to date, but still down in value. So could be an opportunity for people to make a change if it makes sense. Yeah, I think we're, um, we wouldn't tell folks to never change, but it's I don't think it's the kind of thing you want to try to do every it's not like a January 1st. OK, hey, what's the uh, what's the aggregate bond index paying and what's the, right. the equivalent municipal bond index paying? I'm going to go and switch back and forth based on my own personal projected tax rate. That's probably not right. a great idea because then you're trading maybe trading more frequently than you want to be. And if you're doing it every single year, those taxes are, are likely to add up on you even though you're, you don't get a ton of fluctuation in the bond market necessarily. But if it's a certainly a structural change to your life, uh, even if there is a even if there is a tax associated with making the move, as long as you'd say, oh, I think I'm going to here's my new situation. Um, I'm retired now and, and my income's likely to stay relatively similar for the next whatever the number of year is. Years is five. Um, and it's better for me to be in a taxable bond. That's the kind of thing that you want to maybe review, not necessarily yeah. just, hey, every year, which is the best one, because that'll all yeah. that trading will, won't be your friend. And we haven't really had this discussion much in the last several years, because when interest rates were so low and yields were so low, yeah, there wasn't much of a spread between taxable and tax-free bonds. And so... In, in many situations, for it seems like in many situations for many years, the tax-free bonds were better because there just wasn't much of a difference anyway. Yeah, and people and were just were tax-free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they would prefer to not pay the tax. Right, no yeah. matter what the if you had tax a preference, yeah, people yeah, yeah. generally go with the no taxes. That's um, true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And I think I would say most people lean that way anyway. Yeah. Folks in those middle brackets will usually, if we don't know one way or the other, we will usually tend to say, all right, don't know as in we don't know what the future is going to hold. And we're, right. we think it's likely that there's going to be a, it'll be fairly close between which, which is more beneficial, municipal bonds or, or taxable bonds. You usually would just go with the tax-free because there's just people don't like taxes. Nope. But yeah. Right. And, it's, and again, it's also... Yeah. And now that the interest payments, right now that interest rates are higher, the penalty for being wrong, right? If you're, if you, if your bonds are paying you 2%, your penalty for being wrong is substantially less than if you're, if they're at 4% or 5% or 6%, depending on what type of bond you're in. Because even if you're missing, that's then magnified by, by a higher interest payment. And yeah, that's the kind of thing. Just take a look at it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We talked about capital gains potentially to make the change in a bond position. And so that's a good segue to the next discussion, which is harvesting in a technical term in our world, 
harvesting capital gains <laughs> and harvesting capital losses. A really exciting discussion. That is a, that's, I guess I never thought of it that way, but that is the, it's the especially the harvesting harvest? losses. No, but it's a positive spin on it, right? I've heard of realizing tax mm. losses, which is a more neutral term, but harvesting makes it sound like, oh, you got to grab those, you oh. got to grab those losses. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. In, in a down, the down market that we had recently, last calendar year, brings sometimes brings opportunities as it did last year for many of our clients opportunities to realize or take or harvest losses yep. in their portfolio but we could have a similar discussion regarding capital gains harvesting sure. capital gains yep so what this means is first of all in a not in retirement accounts you can't do this inside of IRAs 401k's any retirement accounts because those are tax deferred and there's no gains or losses to be realized that's just taxes paid when the money comes out unless it's a Roth so in taxable accounts what we call taxable accounts or non-qualified or I sometimes just call them non-retirement accounts because most people understand that yep. <laughs> so individual accounts joint accounts trust accounts UTMA accounts for kids these are the types of accounts where their opportunities can be presented based on how the markets move to again take, realize, whatever word you want to use, or harvest losses or gains. So if you think about just for illustrative purposes, we invest $10,000 and let's say the market immediately turns down 20% and that $10,000 is a year later, $8,000. So your what we call the cost basis or your basics basis, excuse me, for tax purposes was your $10,000 investment. And yep. if you sell the position when then it's down to $8,000 in value, then you can realize a $2,000 capital loss. So if you don't sell the position, you just have an what we call an unrealized loss or downward fluctuation. If you sell the position, not a recommendation, we could get into a whole discussion about selling in down markets, but for tax purposes, if you sell the position, you could book or harvest yep. that mm -hmm. tax loss. We'll get to elaborate a little further. You might not, you might consider not selling something off when it's down in value, but we would generally recommend either getting back into the position 31 days later or exchanging for a different position. So you're not out of the market and selling. Right. I think that really selling the, the loss. Just a yeah. quick aside, the harvesting, and I should, maybe I shouldn't have been so negative about the term. Harvesting is generally, you're generally swapping to a similar fund, right? So in, especially now with, with the sheer numbers of mutual funds and exchange traded funds out there, there's a lot of, mm -hmm. you can't just sell you can't sell Apple stock and then buy it back immediately and harvest the loss, but you could right. sell Apple stock and you could buy back a, a technology ETF or you could buy back similar companies. And so the term harvest is you're selling it, you're getting the loss, and then you're putting the money, I think, usually back to work right. pretty immediately. So you're not sitting out of the market. Right? We talk all the time about trying to not be out of the market and give up those opportunities to for appreciation because yeah. uh, we never know we never know when the rally is going to come but so yeah and that's i think the term harvest is you're deploying you're immediately redeploying the capital okay and you're taking the loss oh love that term redeploying capital <laughs> justin <laughs> so the good thing about tax losses i think the one of the there's a couple ways you can use realized tax losses and i think one of them makes sense and the other one i don't think really makes as much sense but first of all you can use tax losses to offset tax gains dollar for dollar and yep. the and they these roll forward for tax years so if you don't use them up they just roll forward you kind of like bank them but 
the sort of the beautiful thing about tax losses and it's limited, but you can use up to $3,000 per year. That hasn't been adjusted upward in a very long time. I, know, I, was, gonna, I was just thinking that. Yeah. When are we going to get some inflation on that? We were just talking about how all these numbers inflated except that one. But you can use up to $3,000 of tax, realized tax losses yep. to offset earned income. So to to elaborate a little further, first of all, when you let's take that ten thousand dollar example and it dropped to eight thousand in a down market and we sold it and we booked a two thousand dollar tax loss and then we to use your term redeployed the capital to another investment immediately. And That's not my it, turn. Just like, then, I, I didn't invent that. <laughs> and then it went and then it grew back to ten thousand dollars or twelve thousand dollars or whatever it is. First of all, for the first investment we made, we set our tax basis at ten thousand, and then we sold and we took a tax loss of two thousand dollars, and then we took that eight thousand dollars and we bought another equivalent investment. In that second investment that we bought with our redeployed capital, our tax basis is then set lower at eight thousand dollars. So when that one grows back to $10,000, I shouldn't say when, I should say if it grows back to $10,000 and then you sold it, then you would have a $2,000 tax gain. So like with your original 10,000 and then you sold again at 10,000, you have a gain then because you took a loss and then you have a gain. But capital gains, we went through the tax brackets earlier in the show, capital gains are taxed at lower tax brackets than earned income for everybody. No matter what bracket you're in for capital gains or income brackets, your capital gains bracket is lower for everybody than your income tax bracket. So if we can use a tax loss to reduce dollar for dollar earned income, we can see and then we pay taxes, late capital gains taxes later on that same $2,000, because you're going to pay it later if you sell the position, unless you die and someone inherits it with what's called a step up in basis. But if you sell that later, you're going to pay the $2,000 gain later at capital gains rates, but you saved $2,000 worth at, in. you saved yourself on income rates on that $2,000. So it's, that's very tax... It's hard to explain, but that's actually very tax efficient. You're only limited to $3,000 per year. Right. So we're not talking about you can't do this on $100,000, but it's, it is a benefit from a tax perspective, even if you're going to pay the capital gain later on that 2000 again, because you reset your tax basis lower, it's actually better. You're saving more money by offsetting your earned income. So that's, I think we're like where where harvesting those losses makes sense. If you're just taking losses to offset future gains, that doesn't really make sense unless someone sold a piece of real estate and they've got a huge gain on it and they need some investment right. losses to reduce it. That that could make sense. But you could do it for yeah, for me before yeah. either there might be some tax bracket management if you have a because you can bank your losses, right? It's yep. I think it's yep. oversold. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Is there's certainly yeah. a benefit to doing the three thousand dollars because you get to pick up the difference between your rate and the cap gains rate. Yeah. The rest of it is making maybe that's our Maybe that's our business just trying to yeah, you know, sell make, itself. Eat, lighten the blow <laughs> yeah. for losses. I will say that, you know, but I don't have a ton of time here left, do we? I want to make sure that I think a down market from an investment point of view is certainly an opportunity. I think I would use it as an opportunity to potentially re, to reallocate or change strategy, right? Yeah. Obviously, there are downsides potentially to changing your investment strategy in a lousy market, especially if you're moving out of depressed assets and selling low. But we have had up until 2022, really, we had a very long bull market. And so we had a lot of folks out there who had 
large, mm-hmm. unrealized capital gains in their portfolios, which for some folks makes it uh, makes the prospect of changing strategy not all that attractive, right? No one wants to get those huge tax bills, right. especially if you have substantial assets. No one wants to get a, oh, hey, you owe an extra $50,000 in taxes this year because you changed your investment strategy yeah. and you realized $250,000 in gains. That's, and your Medicare premium's going up as a result. That's not, yeah, that's not a, a yeah. Just, that's yeah. not, people don't like to sign up for that. And so oftentimes, yeah. for better and for worse, you'll get these appreciated stock portfolios where, oh, I'm going to hang on to this because I don't really want to pay the taxes to change. It's a good time to revisit that because a lot of those gains are either gone or at, le- or at the very least. Re- uh, and so I know we, we've had some of those discussions with our clients where it's, okay, we, this strategy change was, is, was probably appropriate for you before. It's probably appropriate for you now, now that it's, now that we can do it with a lower tax burden, I still think it's I think it's yeah. reasonable to do that. So that, that's the one, one just another thing. While you have some depressed values out there, maybe take a look at potential changes only if they're appropriate. If warranted, yeah. That's almost all the time we have. So we are going to have to wrap up, but I thought that was a good tax-related show. I'm always game for a tax show. You've been listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined by my brother and business partner, Justin McNamara. You can find out more about us at McNamaraFinancial.com or McNamara of the Merrimack com. We have offices in Marshfield and Chelmsford, Massachusetts. We turn all of our radio shows into podcasts, so you can search McNamara on Money wherever you get your podcasts if you ever miss an episode. But that is all the time we have for this morning. Thank you so much for listening. I hope everyone enjoys the weekend, and we'll talk to you next time. Have a good day. Bye-bye. 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 